It's a great day today. God's given us a beautiful day to come together to, to uh, worship Him, and, and we have a, uh, as you know, we have a special guest speaker with us today. We're so excited that Brother Andy Contrell is here. I, I'd like to say that, this, that he's new, but we've all seen him uh, a number of times. We feel like, you know, that uh, he's an old hand here. So, but we're really excited that he's here. Uh, Andy uh, currently serves at the Northwest Church of Christ in New Hope, Minnesota. But most importantly, he's a very faithful minister of the gospel of Christ. And we're really excited that you're here today and come preach your word to us, brother. I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 55, just a couple of chapters from where that reading was taken. And while you do that, I want to say that I really appreciate the invitation to worship God with you this morning and to participate in that worship uh, by sharing some thoughts from God's word. And I am happy to report that I am more than just a talking head. I have like the rest of a body. Um, but I know these last couple of years have been strange for all of us and the request for you from you to have me record sermons and, and send them. Uh, you, you really were the only group that asked for something like that. And uh, it was very awkward for me. I hope it wasn't as awkward for you. Pre I, I would preach to an empty room uh, thinking about your faces which you guys are mostly what I thought about. There's a few of you that I'm not so sure about, but um, I, I just want to thank you for that opportunity in this one, and, um, and let's talk about God's Word together. I want to guess something about your Bible. I might be wrong about this, and I know very few people have these like paper Bibles anymore. Everybody's got their phones and their iPads and all of that, uh, but especially if you have a paper Bible, I have a feeling you probably have something highlighted in Isaiah chapter 55. And it might be that it's the only thing you have highlighted or underlined. Verses 8 and maybe verse 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And the reason that verse in many people's Bible is highlighted is it's certainly the most famous verse in this text. But it's also because usually this verse gets quoted for exactly the wrong reason than it's here in this scripture. Most of my life, if I didn't understand something about God, if he was, there was something going on that was confusing and somebody asked a question I'd sort of shrug my shoulders and I'd quote Isaiah 55 verse 8 and say, well, God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. As if we couldn't possibly understand God, God's thoughts and God's ways. Now, I understand the sentiment of that, but there are much better scriptures to go to for this. That's actually the opposite of what God's trying to say in this text. God's not far away in Isaiah 55. Just look back at verse 6. Verse 6 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is, what? He's not far away. And his thoughts and his ways, even though they are higher than the heavens and the earth, are actually being offered to mankind in this chapter. Verses 8 and 9 are a sales pitch that are actually meant to draw us to listen to God because he wants to share his thoughts and his ways with us. But I'm going to say more about that. 
what happens in these verses is really in the context of an invitation that God gives mankind. Isaiah is prophesying of not only the Messiah that would come, but for a way for all of mankind to become a servant of that Messiah. Really what Isaiah 55 is, is it is a new covenant Christian invitation. And we need to get better at using it for our friends and neighbors. I will tell you, if I meet somebody who's never read the Bible, they don't know anything about this book, sometimes the first thing I will show them is Isaiah 55. It's an invitation from God to do something for you and with you in your life. Some exciting things that he wants to do for us and even more exciting things that he wants to do with us. And I will go ahead and point out that this particular invitation is the last invitation of the Bible. If you notice, you don't have to go there, but Revelation chapter 22, verse 17, at the end of the Bible, the Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come. Come, all you who are thirsty, and drink and, and enjoy this water of life without cost. What Isaiah 55 says here is the same thing the Bible's going to end with, and it's going to sound a lot like the preaching of Jesus. How often would Jesus say things like, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. Come to me, those of you who are thirsty, and I will do things for you and with you in your life that are amazing for you to think about. So I want us to consider Isaiah 55, God's invitation to us, and how powerful a scripture it is. But I want to put it in its context first. What's it doing here in, at the last part of Isaiah? I'm going to give you a couple of ways to organize the book of Isaiah. Isaiah has 66 chapters. Your Bible has how many books? All the kids left, but the kids know this. How many books? 66 books. So Isaiah's got 66 chapters. Your Bible has 66 books. The Old Testament scriptures contain, does anybody know how many books are in the Old Testament? 39. And there's 27 books in the New. Isaiah is organized the exact same way. For the first 39 chapters of Isaiah, listen to the themes of the first 39 books, or the first 39 chapters. God is holy. His people have fallen short of his holiness. And because of that, there is judgment. God's holy, people have failed, and there's judgment. That's Isaiah chapter 1 through 39. Does it occur to you that that's also kind of the theme of the Old Testament? God presents himself as holy, his people have failed, and there's judgment on those people. But the second half of Isaiah, starting in chapter 40, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1 Comfort, O oh comfort, my people, says the Lord God. I have dealt with them with their sins, and I'm now going to comfort them. Isaiah 40 begins just like your New Testament. If you go look there, John the Baptist is there, a voice crying in the wilderness, preparing the way for the Lord. And then in Isaiah 40, Jesus is introduced to us. And the tone changes in Isaiah chapter 40 for the rest of the book. Here are the themes. God is now going to be gracious, and he's going to send a servant. This servant is going to bring the grace of God, and no longer is there going to be judgment, but life and hope and peace. 
Essentially, here's what you have. Isaiah is the Bible in miniature form. I don't know if that's coincidental or providential, but if you want to remember Isaiah, you have the Old Testament section in the first 39 chapters, and you have the New Testament section in chapter 40 through the end, and that section is filled with Jesus and you and me. A lot of times, we go back to the Old Testament to find messianic prophecies but we forget to go back to the Old Testament and find Christianic prophecies. Where are we described? Not just our Savior, but ourselves. And that's really what we have going on here in Isaiah 55. Now, that's one way to organize the book. Let me show you another transition in the book that's very important. Go back to chapter 53 that we read a minute ago. Look at Isaiah 53. And I want to draw your attention uh, to those verses we read. Verse 10 says, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. Stop there for a minute. All of you who are parents, has this verse ever troubled you? That God says that when his son was crushed, when his son hung on the cross, it brought the father pleasure to see this happen. That's hard for me to imagine. But we're told why God was pleased with the crushing of the Messiah in the rest of the verse. It says there uh, at the end of verse 10, it was the good pleasure of the Lord that would prosper in his hand because, look at the middle of the verse, he would see his offspring and he would prolong his days. See, the crushing of Jesus wasn't the end of Jesus. It was just the beginning of his children, his seed. If Jesus doesn't die, he abides alone, he said in John 12. But if he dies and is buried in the ground, he bears much fruit. We're the fruit. We are the offspring. That's why God wanted to see the Messiah suffer. Now, but look at verse 11 now. Here is the verse that's transitional. Isaiah 53, 11, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied by his knowledge, the righteous one, listen to this, this term, my servant will justify the many. Here's why this is important. Underline that word servant in your Bible, and that's the last time you'll read it in the book of Isaiah. Like 25 times, Isaiah has spoken of the coming servant, the coming servant, the coming servant. But that's the last time you'll read it in this book. From now on, the language changes to the servants, plural, the offspring. The prophecies are now no longer about Jesus himself, but about the people that would come from Jesus. And so for the rest of, of Isaiah, the servants of God, the servants of God are being described, you and me. Just to see that pointedly, go to the end of chapter 54. Look at Isaiah 54, verse 17, right before our chapter that we're talking about today. Verse 17 says, No weapon that is fashioned against you will prosper. Every tongue that accuses you in judgment you will condemn. This is the heritage of who? Servants, plural. Here's what the church is told. Even though the weapons that were formed against the Messiah brought him to his death, after the Messiah's offspring would begin to 
spread throughout the globe, no one would ever be able to bring down the Messiah's offspring. No, no weapon that's formed against us will prosper. There's no way they can march into our territory and cut us all off. It won't happen again. Because the heritage of the servants of the Lord is that God has made them victorious. Now, what does that have to do with Isaiah 55? Now, Isaiah 55 is an invitation to this servanthood, to this kingdom, to belong to Messiah and have your life changed and have God use your life for all kinds of grand purposes. So let's read through chapter 55 and see what God's inviting us to. Starting in verse 1, Isaiah 55, 1. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend your money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. Let's talk about the beginning of that invitation for a few minutes. Who's being invited in verse 1, you see? He says, all of you who are thirsty, all of you who are not satisfied in your life. And he even says, all of you who are are poverty stricken, you don't have any money to pay God. Come to me if you're thirsty and dissatisfied and you don't have any money. But he uses language that's almost confusing. He says, come, buy and eat. But I I don't need your money. Well, what's it going to cost me? This almost sounds too good to be true, doesn't it? You notice that what is being offered is wine and milk. You see that in verse 1? That's rich people food. In the ancient world, it wasn't like everybody just got to drink wine and milk. You remember the promised land was a land flowing with milk and honey and grapes that were growing. You don't get to say to poor people who have no money, come come eat wine and milk, maybe bread and water. But God is offering the most opulent of things at no cost to us. When I was growing up in the 80s here in Southern California... Uh, I liked lots of different kind of music, but do you guys remember Huey Lewis? Um, he had a great song that went something like this. Don't take money, don't take fame, don't take no credit card to ride this train. That's the power of, you remember? Love. It's actually kind of a brilliant song. Anybody can fall in love. You don't have to be rich. Anybody can fall in love. And if you think about that, it's kind of cool, but I'll tell you something. God wrote those lyrics a long time ago. If you're thirsty, if you're dissatisfied, if you don't have any money, come buy and eat from me. It won't, take, it won't cost you a dime, and I will give you wine and milk. I will satisfy your soul. But what does he mean that we will eat these things? Look at verse 2 again. When he says, why do you spend your money for what's not bread? Look, everything you've ever spent your money on is not spiritual bread. Man does not live 
on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, the Israelites were supposed to learn in the wilderness. Jesus learned it in his wilderness. We should be learning this in our wilderness that God wants to give us something to eat. But notice how we eat in verse 2. Listen carefully to me and eat what is good. You know, God's always taken care of us through our mouths. He causes food to grow. We all, all of his creation takes it and puts it in our mouth and he gives us life. But Isaiah was predicting a time when God was going to feed us through our ears. And so three times at the beginning, he says, listen, incline your ear, come to me and listen to me that you may live. That was God's plan. You guys remember Jesus preaching like that? I've always wanted to start sermons the way Jesus did, but I just don't have the nerve to do it. Do you remember when he uh, was preaching the parables, the parable of the sower? Does anybody remember the first line in the parable of the sower? A sower went out to sow. Remember that? Actually, he said something right before that. You remember what he said right before that? Listen! The sower went out to sow. And then as he got done with the parable... He said, he who has ears to hear, what? Let him hear. Here's what Jesus was very interested in. People who listen. Why? Let's go on and see what God says to the people who are willing to listen to him. Let's keep reading in verse 3. I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercy shown to David. Behold, I've made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you will call a nation which you do not know, and a nation which knows you not will run to you because of the Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Hey, thirsty, poor people, dissatisfied people, if you come and listen to me, not only will I give you life, look at verse 3 again, I'll make a covenant with you like I did with David. Look at David. He did something that I'll do with you. Time out. When I was a kid, I loved this passage as a boy, but I had no idea what verses 3 through 5 meant. So I'm going to skip it, all right? We're just skipping it. I'll come back to it at the end, but you get to go through the journey with me like when I was young. I didn't know what these verses were about. So let's go to verse 6. I promise we'll come back to this. But let's continue with God's invitation. Verse 6, look what he says in verse 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, the righteous man and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord, and he will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Let's talk about this. I want you to think about your loved ones that don't have God in their life. Do you think they believe verse 6? When, the, when verse 6 says, seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he is near. I'll tell you what most people think, is that God is way too far away. Like they can't get anywhere near him. 
They don't understand him. They don't see him. This world's God forsaken. They've done too much wrong. God can't possibly be nearby. But the good news is, is God's not very far away. You remember when Paul would preach in the book of Acts, when he would go to a synagogue, he would spend a lot of time talking about the law and the prophets and the prophecies of the Messiah. Remember that? But when he would go to Gentiles, his sermons sounded different. Like that day that he stood in the Areopagus on Mars Hill with all of those philosophers. Do you remember his sermon? I'll tell you something. That sermon is a sermon we need to hear today. He started by saying something like this. God is the father of every single one of us. Every one of us came from the same place. Is that a message for the world today? But he goes on in that sermon and he says, and he's not far from any one of us. If we'll just grope for him in the darkness, we will find him. Now, where did Paul get an idea to preach to humanity like that? Isaiah 55. God's not far. Seek him while he's right here. Now, look at verse 7. Verse 7 is the, ca- <clears throat> is the catch. Remember, verses 1 through 3 sound too good to be true. I don't have to pay God off. But verse 7 is the cost of coming to God. And I'll tell you, God hits us where it hurts. In fact, all of the language of verse 7 sounds like the New Testament, doesn't it? Repentance is there. Getting rid of things in your life. Forgiveness is there. Your iniquities will be forgiven. It's a New Testament message. But what is mankind being asked to give up in that verse? Forsake your thoughts and forsake your ways. You know, if God had said, bring me some money, and I'll save your soul, I think we could probably fill this place. Like, honestly, over human history, if people thought that what God wanted was animals, they gave their animals. If it was money, they gave their money. If it was their children, there were even times that God's people would throw their babies into the fire. But do you know what nobody wants to give up? Their thoughts and their ways. That's the essence of who they are. In fact, that's why you guys argued this morning on the way to church. It is. Or after church, you're going to argue about something. Hey, honey, turn right. No, I'm going straight. But that's not the best way to go. Yes, it is. Where are we going to eat? Well, we should eat here. No, you know, you pick where we're going to eat. And then you pick. And then somebody's like, no, that's a terrible place. Like, really, the reason people argue is their thoughts and their ways are better than your thoughts and your ways. So let's say that I stood up here today and I offered you this. Be careful before you raise your hand. How many of you are willing to trade your thoughts and your ways for Andy Cantrell's thoughts and Andy Cantrell's ways? Now, God, do with your money what I tell you. You got to root for the Padres. Who was that? You got, you got to do things my way. And you would laugh and say, not a chance. So do you know what God needs to do now? He needs to convince us 
that giving up our thoughts and our ways are exactly what we should do. So now listen to the sales pitch in verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. And my ways, and your ways are not my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now do you see contextually what he's doing? He's not saying you can't possibly understand my thoughts and my ways. What he's saying in this chapter is, I want to give them to you. Incline your ear, I'll pour them in from up above, and your thoughts and your ways will be so much better than they used to be. Your thoughts are down here on earth. My thoughts are up here in heaven, and I'm offering them to you freely. Now let me be a skeptic. Keep that imagery in mind for a minute. Now I'll come back to it. The heavenly perspective versus the earthly perspective. But let me be a skeptic. Isaiah, Isaiah, you're crazy. God is never going to send from above his thoughts and his ways to help mankind. There's no way that's going to happen. I think God anticipates the skeptic. Look at the next verse. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout, furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. God uses an illustration here. He says, you know how I've always been sending you from above rain and snow? Jesus used this in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, God causes the rain to fall on the just and on the unjust. For the skeptic that doesn't think God wants to help us from up there, just pay attention. He always has been helping us up from up there. He sent rain and snow. Now, how do you feel about rain and snow? I grew up in Southern California in the 80s. It rained like twice. You guys remember that? They had like policemen going around writing tickets if you washed your car on the wrong day. Um, so I wasn't real familiar with that. But I live in Minnesota now. And right now, as we're speaking, it's snowing like three inches. I've already got this much snow in my front yard. How do you feel about snow? Anybody ever lived in it? How do you feel about it? Most people hate it. And that's kind of how it is back home. Except for some people. Some people pray for it. They welcome it. When it falls, they begin to smile. It's the farmers. They know that if it stops raining and snowing, pretty soon, what's the verse say? We've got no seed to sow. If God makes it stop raining and snowing, we will have nothing to do after a little while. And we will have nothing to eat. But see, God's just using that as an illustration. What I'm actually telling you about, he says in verse 11, is my word is going to be like that too. 
I'm going to send it from up there. And you know how a lot of people react to God's word? The same way they do to the rain and the snow. Ah, I don't like this. I don't want to hear this. This is just messing up my life. But just like the rain and the snow can be judgment for one group of people and life for another group of people, the word of God is a two-edged sword that can either cut somebody for judgment or cut them for salvation. So God says, my word's gonna do exactly what I want it to do. By the way, some of you were that person who the word of God fell on you for years, maybe even decades. And kind of like what happens in Minnesota, you just looked dead. Like It's like, you know, in like October, November, God kills planet Earth up there. And then he like covers it with a white sheet of death. But springtime comes. And I've never seen anything like spring. The trees start twitching. And then all of a sudden, it bursts to life. And that was some of you. God's word kept falling. And nobody thought anything was going to happen. But then one day it did. So let's finish the invitation. What does God say might happen in your life? Look at verse 12. For you will go out with joy. You will be led forth with peace. The mountains and the hills will break forth into shouts of joy before you. All the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush, the cypress will come up. Instead of the nettle, the myrtle will come up. And it will be a memorial to the Lord for an everlasting sign which will not be cut off. Now remember who was being invited at the beginning of the text. People who were dissatisfied. People who were poor. People who were thirsty. Or in other words, people who didn't have joy and peace in their life. Let me get you to think about your friends and family. Again, that don't have God in their life. Doesn't, doesn't those two words, joy and peace, describe what they've always been looking for? Every relationship, every new toy, every pursuit, think, they think they're going to find joy and peace in this. But every human being gets to a place in their life where they finally realize that relationship, that much money, those particular political figures that they finally put in power hasn't done what they hoped. So God says, if you'll listen to me, trade your thoughts and your ways for my thoughts and my ways, I'll change the landscape of your life. You'll have joy, you'll have peace. And then it turns into a Disney movie. Did you catch that? You got mountains shouting for joy and trees clapping their hands. It's like Fantasia or something. What is that about? I don't know everything about this. But I want you to picture it. I want you to picture a mountain shouting for joy before you. That usually doesn't happen with mountains. Have you ever walked up to the foot of a mountain? You had like a crazy friend that wanted to take you hiking. And you walked up to the foot of the mountain and you looked up at that thing. And it felt like the mountain was saying, you'll never get over me. It wasn't cheering you on, it was shouting you down. By the way, trials in life sometimes are described like this. Mountains. 
But then, maybe you got in an airplane after that trip, and you got up and you looked at that mountain from heaven's point of view, and you could see the other side, and you thought, was that the mountain that made life so hard for me? You see, what God wants to do with people who've had an Isaiah 55 experience is change their perspective about everything in life, even mountains. In fact, you help me with this. You know this passage. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, temptations, mountains. Who thinks like that? You don't walk into somebody's house who's going through a trial and say, isn't this great? Consider it all joy. But you can say that to New Covenant people. Because as James goes on to say in that text, it's from something that we know that was different than we used to know because knowing that the testing of our faith produces endurance and endurance has its perfect work that we become perfect people. The trials don't shout at us. The mountains cheer us on. And if you doubt that, I want you to think about people who had just a different perspective about life and scripture. You guys remember in the New Testament when Paul wrote the book of Philippians? Where was Paul when he wrote Philippians? Where was he? He's in prison, chained up to a guard. And he says things like this. I want you to know that my circumstances stink and it's terrible in here because I can't be preaching where I used to be. That's not what he says at all. He says, I want you to know that my circumstances have turned out for the what? The furtherance of the gospel. So rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always, I say. Could God really make people like that? That's new covenant. But you know, it's true even in the old covenant that people that really traded their thoughts and their ways for God's thoughts and God's ways could see the world different than everybody else. Since David is mentioned here in verse 3, let's use David as the example. Let me ask you to help me again with this scripture. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Time out. When was David's life ever like that. Maybe when he was a shepherd boy. You know, maybe when he was out taking care of his father's flocks. Except I remember David saying even then there were bears, lions. What was David saying when he said, look, God's my shepherd and I don't want for anything. My life is green pastures and still waters. That's his perspective. It's not his physical reality. Later on in the same psalm, here was the physical reality. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for you're with me. I really like the last thing David says in that psalm. You've prepared a table before me in the what? in the presence of my enemies. Can you picture it? All the enemies of David are surrounding him. Every weapon that's formed against him that they're certain is going to prosper. 
They've all lined up around him. David closes his eyes and he sits down at a banquet table. What's on the table? Maybe wine, maybe milk. He sees things that nobody else sees. There was a movie, um, I think it was early 90s, and the only reason I really liked the movie is because I was narcissistic and the guy in the movie looked like me. Um, it um, It was called Hook. Robin Williams was Peter Pan. The kid in the movie that was Peter Pan, when he looked in the reflection of the water, that was me. It looked just like me. But Robin Williams had forgotten he was Peter Pan. And the lost boys come from Neverland and take him back to Neverland. And he's like, I don't know who you guys are. I don't know what you guys are talking about. Robin Williams' life was terrible. He wasn't happy. His marriage was failing. He'd lost his joy. And there's this one scene in the movie where the lost boys sit down at a banquet table. Do you guys remember that scene? There's nothing on it. It's empty. And they're all eating, and mm, this is amazing, and this is great. And Robin Williams is looking at them like they're crazy. And then he has an Isaiah 55 moment. Their thoughts and their ways become his thoughts and his ways. And he sees the food, and he finds joy, and he finds peace. That's a cool movie. God wrote the script. It's the story of the gospel. And I want to ask you something again. If that was really true about God's people, that we were really people that no matter how dark it got, no matter how difficult things were, no matter how many enemies were surrounding us, we were led forth with joy and with peace. We were genuinely people who celebrated what we have with God. What could God do with something like that? Well, that's what the last part of the text says. It will be a memorial for the Lord. It'll make a name for him. You can try to destroy God's people, but every time a joyful, peaceful person rises up in the darkness and is unaffected by everything else in their life, God makes a name for himself. But he does something else. Go back to verses 3 through 5. This is where this text finally makes sense. Verse 3 says, I will make an everlasting covenant you according to the faithful mercy shown to David. Now what do you mean, God? What do you mean? Verse 4. Behold, I've made him a witness to the people, a leader and commander for the people. Now, stop for a second. I don't have time to do this with you, but at the end of David's life in 2 Samuel 22 and 2 Samuel 23, this is exactly what he says. He says, God, I don't understand what you've done in my life. I was nobody. And now, wherever I go, people come trembling out of their fortresses. I don't just rule my nation. Other nations come to me. God, how did you do this to me in my life? So here's what God says in Isaiah 55, 4. Look at David. Look at David. I made him a witness and a leader and commander for people. What does that have to do with you and me? Verse 5. 
And you, just like David, you will call a nation you do not know. A nation which knows you not will run to you because of the Lord your God, for he has exalted you, glorified you. He's made you different. Or as Jesus would say it, you are the light of the world. But it's only true if we've traded our thoughts and our ways for God's thoughts and God's ways. And every perspective we have about the things in our life are heaven's perspective. And so it's no longer a desert. It's a flourishing rainforest. It's no longer tumbleweeds. It's a cypress tree. Some of you know the Lord because you met one of those servants. Everything about them was different. When I was preaching in the San Fernando Valley, it was when 9-11 happened. You remember that? Planes flying into buildings in New York and the whole world's coming apart. There was this young college graduate that had come to worship with us, beautiful young lady, uh, Dana. Dana Mars was her name. She worked at JPL. You guys know what that is? Jet Propulsion Labs. She was a rocket scientist. And she worships with our humble little church. She was always there. She was always faithful. And she worked around some of the smartest people in the world. 9-11 happened, and about a week later, Dana showed up, and there was this young man with her, and I went up and introduced myself. I said, my name's Andy. He said, I'm uh, Jamin Greenbaum. Never heard a name like that. I said, hey, well, what are you doing here this morning? He said, up until last week, I never even thought about God. And if I did, I just thought people that believed in him were crazy. He said, but the other day when those planes flew into that building and I was standing in a room with the smartest people I've ever met, people that I admired, that I thought knew everything about life. He said they were all losing their minds. None of them could figure out what it all meant. And he said, and I looked over and I saw Dana. She was appropriately sad about the whole thing. But it didn't rob her of her joy. She was still kind. And Jamin said, I want what she has. Folks, evangelism isn't learning to knock on every door, figuring out all the most clever ways to get people into this building. Evangelism is what God does when God's people act like God's people, when they trade their thoughts and their ways for God's thoughts and God's ways. And when you go to work this week and everybody's talking about how terrible it is, how, how nobody's getting what they deserve, how the world's so upside down, and they look at you for something and you say, the joy of the Lord is my strength. I have joy, I have peace. What can man do to me? And there will be people who will come to the light. Is this invitation compelling to you? If you are someone who does not have joy, peace, purpose in your life, incline your ear. Come to him. Listen that you may live.
eat what is good. He'll make a covenant with you. If you're baptized into Jesus Christ and you're one of his children, he will use your life to continue to draw people to himself. And it's the best way to live. But please hear the invitation of the Lord and come to him today. Let's go ahead and stand and sing this song of encouragement. And if we can help you, let us know how. I want to thank Andy for that message. Thank you for, for coming to share that with us today. Um, I think we were all blessed by that. And, you know, as, as, as we listen to that message and just think about our purpose in this world, um, it's about sharing what we hear with others and allowing our lights to shine in the world. Um, when we go out and watch the news, we can, we can often be reminded that it's a dark place out there. But what we receive here and what we receive by reading the word and letting it, letting it sink into our hearts uh, allows us to turn our light on and let it shine in the world. Let's keep those thoughts in mind as we, as we, uh, as we leave this place. Let's go to Heavenly Father in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you at this time thanking you for this day. Thank you for the message. Thank you for the messenger that you allowed to come to us today and be with us today and share that word with us today. We pray that it finds a place in our hearts. It takes root there, that it grows and prospers, and that it allows your light to shine through us as we go into the world. Be with us as we leave this place. Let no hurt, harm, or danger befall on any of us. It's in Jesus' name I pray and ask it all. Amen. Oh